Mr. Pop. Dark. When the little birds are nesting, and I listen to them too, there's two lonesome people in the whole wide world. That's me and the man in the moon. Hello, and welcome to Miskatonic University Radio, a podcast exploring Fantasy Flight Games' Arkham Horror the Card Game. I'm Dane. I'm Dan. And I'm Ben. And today, we're diving into the exciting world of fan-created scenarios. Whoa, whoa, wait, wait a minute, Dane. Are you saying that there are scenarios for this game that are created by fans and not uh, officially released by Fantasy Flight Games, Inc.? <laughs> right you are, Dan. Wow. These are indeed... Dozens of scenarios on ArkhamCentral.com and Tabletop Simulator designed by players like you and I. Wow, that sounds like a a cornucopia of uh, creativity and excitement for fans to enjoy. That it certainly is. I mean, each of these scenarios boasts varying levels of polish, but I think that they're all pretty entertaining in most ways. Yeah, we've we've been playing some of these recently. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, it's it's definitely... uh, it's a little bit rough around the edges sometimes because they're they're often not play tested quite as much as uh, FFG does with their official scenarios, but it gives people a chance to kind of explore some things that are kind of outside what you'd find from the official campaigns, and uh, it's just fun, you know. If you're um, if you play the game a lot and you're looking for new stuff to do, it's kind of a way to get more content than you do from just waiting for the Mythos pack to come out every month. Yeah, it was kind of almost hard to believe when you stumbled across one particularly impressive project. This was an entire eight-scenario campaign inspired by At the Mountains of Madness, created by an Arkham Horror fan and game designer, Tim Fletcher. Yeah, we've uh, we've been playing this campaign, and uh, we, we really love it so far. So it's eventually going to be eight scenarios. The first three are available now, and those are the three that we've played. So um, yeah, so we, we had a chance to interview Tim and talk to him about how he got involved with the game. Uh, how he thinks about game design, uh, some design insights on the first three scenarios. So yeah, so so I guess in in the interview that we're about to play, spoiler warning for those first three scenarios. If you're planning to play this already, then maybe wait until after you played those three. Uh, if you're kind of on the fence about whether to play it, then maybe listen. Maybe you'll get a. Maybe we can talk you into it. Get off that fence! They're amazing. Yeah, why are you sitting on a fence when you could be sitting at a table in a dark, spooky room, uh, pretending you're in Antarctica getting frostbite? <laughs> Without further ado, let's jump to our interview with Tim Fletcher. Hey listeners, we're here with Tim Fletcher, a.k.a. Jack Strazzi, designer of the Betrayal at the Mountains of Madness fan-made campaign. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, Hi there. And thank you for joining us from a, a faraway land where the time zone is uh, is drastically different from from those that we're familiar yeah, with. Yeah, it's it's the middle of the night here. Oh no! <laughs> uh, yeah, we were really excited to talk to you, Tim. We've been playing your campaign um, so far as as it's released. So we played the first two scenarios a little while ago, and then um, just today we just played the third, which I think is you know kind of right in the kind of like beta stage. Is that right? Yeah. So I, I, I mean, I I got together. A release of it so you guys could play it but i i'd like to talk to you about it later on because i really really like your <laughs> feedback because it's it's uh getting getting other people to play it where it's of it really course becomes. yeah because <laughs> i you know I, i've played it dozens of times and the first time i got first time i got someone other than me to play it, it immediately broke ah. <laughs> i had to make loads of changes to it 
I mean, we know that FFG does that a lot too, right? They have a lot of playtesting that goes on, you know, that it's definitely like necessary. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. So to, to give our listeners a little bit of background. So the campaign's called Betrayal at the Mountains of Madness. It's eventually going to be eight scenarios, right? That's the plan. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's, you know, without giving too much away until maybe later in the interview, we'll, we'll switch to kind of like a spoiler warning mode. It involves a voyage to Antarctica kind of following up on the events of Lovecraft's at the Mountains of Madness. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Which is really cool because I know I, I think for us that's one of our favorite Lovecraft stories. It's really oh, yeah. fantastic. Yeah, pretty unanimously, I think. Yeah, yeah, mine too. It's I think it must have been one of the first ones I read, but yeah, that's that's definitely my favorite because it's 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 the most sci-fi I think of his of his stories for sure. It's also uh, it's it's just kind of a really great adventure story that's also has a lot of horror stuff going on in it. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, so we were curious. What's your uh, what's your background with um, with game design and with kind of Lovecraftian stuff uh, more specifically? How did you get involved, and how did you how did you decide that you were going to put in all of this time and energy and make an entire campaign on your own? Um, so I'm a game developer in my day job, and but uh, in in my spare time, I, I spend all my time making things. And, um, <laughs> so I'm always pottering away in Unity, making some game project or another. And so I initially bounced off Arkham Heart of the Card Game when I first played it playing solo Roland and sitting and trying to investigate the study and trying to draw a minus one or better to get on with the game <laughs> was a terrible experience. And I put it away and I didn't touch it again for over a year. Oh, but no. I have some friends who are really, really into it. And they said they were trying to convince me to try it again. And I was asking them loads of questions. Eventually, I did get back into it. it turns out it's a much better game two-handed. So I got really into it. And I've really enjoyed it. It's definitely my favorite of the, of the FFG games. Awesome. I, I started out um, working on custom investigators and things because i wanted to do because i'm always making things i thought well, i'll make something and it seems to have a community that quite like that kind of thing but making custom investigators i thought well no one's actually ever going to play these so i made a bunch and people said oh yeah, that's cool and they gave me feedback on the designs but clearly no one was ever actually going to print them out and try them out so i looked at what content people were actually doing and it was campaigns and initially i did plan to make something like a, a single one and then suddenly i started you know you know how it is you start planning a project and suddenly it expands and it expands and it expands yeah the process, but oh, but what if this happened? Oh, but what if this happened? Oh, but I, then I can incorporate this and so on. As soon as three a.m. and you filled up an entire notepad and you're saying, "What have I done? What have I, what have I signed up <laughs> yeah. for?" Yeah. So a, a big part of the reason for my inspiration is actually, I mean, Other Mountains of Madness is, as we said, like this is my favorite Lovecraft story, but it's actually a um, a call of a Chaosium Call of Cthulhu sourcebook called Beyond the Mountains of Madness, which is a follow up to Out the Mountains of Madness. And honestly, it's not actually that great a campaign. I've tried to run it. And it's kind of it's kind of dull and linear, but the backstory in it is absolutely fantastic. Like it, it, what it, ah. it's basically focused around the question: What did Danforth see when he looked backwards in the plane at the end, and he goes mad? Lovecraft alludes that he saw something, and it's basically exploring what he saw and and what it means and why. And it's got this incredibly elaborate backstory about what's going on with the Elder Things and what happened to their city and what happened to the Shoggoths and so on and so forth. And that that's that's the thing that really made me want to explore this material more so the campaign is kind of because i'm assuming most people who've read at the mountains of madness won't have won't have read the source book so it's kind of a sequel to it but it also includes a lot of the content from it for people who won't have played it before that's really neat yeah and uh again without going too far into the details you know it takes place a little bit later a few years later than most of the uh arkham file stuff that we've seen and it's it kind of like follows up a little bit on on those events and it's it's really really neat 
So I, one question that I, I kind of had, you know, you mentioned you're a game designer and I know there's some game systems like uh, D&D or GURPS or things like that that are, you know, designed intentionally to be like a playground for people to make their own scenarios and their own adventures. And Arkham Horror isn't like officially designed to be that way, right? Like the there's not any kind of like source book for people to make their own stuff officially. But do you find that, you know, despite that, is it like a pretty good game system that lends itself well to making your own stuff, to experimenting and being creative? Or are there parts of it that kind of like work against you that are kind of tough to deal with? Like what, what is it like as a, like a, a base game system for creativity? I think it, it is quite challenging, but I think that it's quite challenging is um, part of what makes it so interesting. So I, like, a, you know, if you think, if you compare it with other FFG games in, in the same genre, like, Eldritch Horror and Mansions of Madness and that sort of thing. It's very complex in its systems. The thing that stands out to me is the fact that there's both an act deck and an agenda deck. Mm. And that I'm finding is one of the most challenging things to design because usually when you design a scenario for, if you're making a sort of dungeon game like Mansions of Madness or uh, just a, a conventional role playing scenario, there's a series that usually there's a series of events. It might be linear. It might be non-linear, but ultimately there's a series of events that culminates. And in a typical Arkham scenario, there's actually two sequences of events happening. There's whatever you're doing and there's whatever the enemy are doing, whatever the enemy means in that. It's, com- it's right. complicated. It could be anything. And they have to not causally interact <laughs> because if they causally interact, then you end up with like when the agenda advances, you have to advance the act deck or vice versa or something like that. So actually right. most, there are a few scenarios that do do that, but most of them, there's something happening and then there's something else happening and you've got to, you've got to somehow design effectively two plots for every scenario. And and you can have a little bit of, you can have an act that says, like, when this advances, if the agenda is this number, then do this, and if not, do this. But if you do that on every single one, then it becomes a huge mess, right? Yeah, I think that's not playing to the strength of the system, right? Like, the agenda, the agenda deck is supposed to be a time limit. And if, if you're skipping forward in the agenda deck because of what you've accomplished, that's just encouraging you to sit around and draw cards and punishing you for getting on with the game, you know? So it's 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 quite tr- tricky. It's, it's, just, I've still not got a hang for the fourth scenario I'm working on at the moment. There's an event that happens that's supposed to sort of define the plot of the of the scenario, and I keep swapping it between the agenda deck and the act deck, and then swapping it back again, <laughs> depending on what causally makes sense and what thematically makes sense, and I, I can't figure out where to put it. Yeah. We've seen that. I mean, we've seen FFG and some of the official scenarios experiment a little bit with like two acts or three agendas or, or some kind of stuff like that. So I, I think that's one thing that's cool about it. It's even this kind of core part of the game where there's an act deck and an agenda deck. There's room to even mess around with that a little bit and it still basically works. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the other defining thing about that I would say of, of the card game is certainly something I would, I would consider a responsibility of someone making scenarios and i think matt takes very seriously as a responsibility is every scenario needs to do something fresh and interesting mm. so to, to the specific question you asked about like is it is it designed to have content made for it almost not like a conventional game design breakdown would be that you know you build a system that's the complicated bit and then you churn out content for that system you just publish scenarios that's much easier well sorry i shouldn't say that's easier it's a different skill to writing the system but at least you're not having to write the system and that's true for like dlc for games or even sequels for fairly you know games that don't change very much like say assassin's creed but in arkham matt matt just redesigns the system every new scenario (laughs) there's some whole new system that has never been used before and probably will never be used again and that's part of what makes it so fresh and interesting to play is you know what's it's not just going to be gathering clues and killing monsters. It's going to be some weird new thing that you're doing with the chaos bag or some weird new thing you're doing with the components. And so that, I feel like that's very exciting, but very challenging to to make sure each scenario does something fresh. 
It, it also, it lends itself to a huge amount of replayability. I mean, we, you know, if, if you love this game like we do and like, like you, you and your friends do, I mean, we go back and we play the old campaigns again. And because it's not like, oh, I'm playing Arkham again, it's like I'm playing Dunwich again or something like that, which I haven't done in a couple of years, maybe. It really keeps it fresh. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, again, comparing it with, say, Mansions of Madness. Like, I really like Mansions of Madness 2nd Edition, but mm. I've no particular desire to replay any of the scenarios, because they're going to play out basically the same as last time. Or if they didn't, it's going to be like, I did or didn't search the chest, and I did or didn't find the random item, you know. But yeah, right. Arkham Horrors, yeah. Yeah. very, very replayable, very, uh, yeah, you, you want to play it again with different numbers of players and different people and different investigators and... Is uh so when we were talking to you earlier, you mentioned a little bit about um playtesting these scenarios. So we we kind of sort of playtested the the third scenario just a little bit just now. What have you learned again without getting too deep into the specifics of the campaign because of spoilers? But what sort of things have you learned from playtesting, from watching other people play your scenarios and having to tweak things? Is it mostly like rules interactions, or is it like how do I explain how this is working better so that people can understand it? Like what are the main takeaways? Yeah, yeah. I mean, rules interactions are really important. Like like one of you mentioned when you were playing. Oh. Uh, the, the um the survivor card that when you evade something puts it into the uh oh, yeah. shuffles <laughs> into the deck yeah close call the enemy that you were dealing with was one that was double sided so it couldn't have been shuffled into the encounter deck so mm-hmm. that's just an interaction right. interaction that I hadn't thought of that kind of I mean you know usually I think uh, some the official scenarios have have interactions like that that break a little bit you know and yeah. I think players are pretty good at oh we'll, we'll we'll just figure it out we'll model through and figure it out but yeah it is useful for finding that but um. The main key thing is is people think differently, and that could be it manifests in two different ways. One is that you try a strategy that hadn't occurred to me, like you know, what if we just sit and evade the boss for five turns or whatever. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's one that, that's one that would have occurred to me, right? But like you know, that's the whole point is getting people to um, try out different things and, and and things that I can't describe because I haven't thought of them. Um, but the other is also the information that you have and what you do with that information and what you expect as a result of that information and that can be both like you make horribly incorrect decisions based on the flavor text (laughs) or it could be it could just be you have certain expectations either positive or negative and i need to do my best to like fulfill that and i can't because i'm so close to the text with the best will in the world i can't really empathize with what it's like to not have read that information from someone else sorry to have read that information from someone else's perspective Mm. um so that's really really valuable so with that it's not really much of a spoiler to say like there's a blizzard in the Antarctic, right? And one of the one right. of the agenda decks says there's going to be a blizzard. You better not be outside when it comes. And one of my friends said, oh, we'd better not be outside when the blizzard comes. And actually, <sighs> the mechanics didn't have anything to do with whether or not you were outside or not. So I changed based on what he'd said on his expectation. I changed the mechanics to reward you for going inside because previously it punished you regardless. Now it only punishes you if you're outside. And mm. I mean, I, I should have caught that one, right? But like playtesting is super useful for, for catching other people's expectations. Yeah. Yeah. Cause people are going to have some expectations from the actual real world things that you're kind of describing and using as flavor. And then they're going to have other expectations from the kind of built up uh, culture of the game of like the existing scenarios and kind of patterns that they follow, even if they're not laid down as official rules. So just having to like be aware of all of those must be a lot to keep track of. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, funnily enough, that so the scenario you guys just played, which is you're surviving in Antarctica, right? The reason that scenario exists is because every time I've asked people, "What do you want from an Out of the Mountains of Madness campaign?" they all say, "I want to, I want to die of pneumonia, or I want to get lost in the snow, <laughs> I want to, I want to hike around." And like to me, that's not a very important part about the Mountains of Madness. That's like the boring opening two chapters where they're getting lost <laughs> in the snow, and then the actual good stuff happens to the remaining eighty percent of the book. But apparently, like 
you know, for 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 the people I was asking, I, I asked on Reddit a couple of times, I asked on Discord a couple of times. Like, I got pretty consistent. Like, they wanted Antarctic survival to be a mechanic. So I feel like some people will say, just make what you want, just make what you love. But I think there is an a, there is an aspect to which if I expect people to give up their time to play something I've made, I ought to at least try to provide them something they want you know <laughs> well and i guess with eight scenarios there's room to kind of like check a lot of boxes and give you know different Absolutely, experiences yeah. to different people i'm i'm looking forward to i assume that we're going to get to at some point explore the like spooky ancient city uh from the from the novella at some point in the future i'm ex- i'm really excited about that yeah <laughs> yeah that would be another one where i think yeah it would be disappointing if you didn't or like <laughs> oh you just yeah you just go home you're done. You're yeah. done in the Antarctic. You just leave, <laughs> and the next the next four scenarios are set in Arkham. You yeah. suddenly remember that you left the stove on back at your apartment, and you're like, "Oh, oh we were having a good time, but we just have to leave." <laughs> yeah. The um the names of all the scenarios are actually on the on the blog that I've put the uh, data on, although I keep changing them. <laughs> but currently, scenario six is called City of the Elder Things. Ah, and, excellent. Uh, oh, I'm probably going to change it to something a bit more oblique. But, mm. but it's not it's not intended to be a secret that you will end up at the city. Nice, yeah, yeah. In in a lot of respects, it's almost harder to design all of the respective elements that people are requesting in a way that you can spread them out over the scenarios without getting tired or without you know being used up. And then you you arrive at the sixth scenario and you're like, well, I already used these mechanics. How do I? Did do you ever kind of fall into that trap? Uh, I haven't yet. <laughs> the um, I mean. Uh, I would say like, okay, so I don't want to, I don't want to say the campaign has to play out a certain way, but the, the way right. that I've written the campaign, I think works in a relatively logical expected way. So you start, there's an introduction, then you sail to the Antarctic, then you're in the Antarctic. And you, you know, I could have started it in the middle of a fight in the city of the elder things, but I think that slow build up, that's, that's the Lovecraftian genre, right? Yeah. It doesn't have to be that way, but I think with an eight scenario campaign, it makes sense to do that. And that actually, that's actually meant that of the first four scenarios, three of them are quite combat light. They're quite, you know, you're wandering around the Antarctic wastes. It's mm. not full of ghouls or, or, or monsters. Shoggoths aren't wandering around in the snow on the on the um, ice shelf because they'd freeze to death there. So actually, you wouldn't expect there to be much combat. And, and the premises of the second and fourth scenarios also don't really lend themselves to combat. So I'm slightly worried that Guardians are going to get a bit sad. <laughs> so I spent quite... Spend quite a lot of time trying to make sure there's mechanics for them to interact with, like flying the plane around or whatever. That's something that, uh, yeah, I mean, without getting too deep into it, that is something that we found with some of the other fan-made scenarios we've played is that um, some of them kind of like seem to lean very far in the direction of uh, combat or more commonly non-combat stuff. So you do sometimes end up yeah. in a situation where your guardian doesn't have much to do. But yeah, th- this campaign so far has been, I think, much more much more balanced. That's good. If, it's, if that's come across well, that's good. Yeah, I think that's an easy mistake to make because I imagine a lot of people who are coming to make content are prob they're probably coming at it from a Call of Cthulhu or, or at least Lovecraftian perspective. And combat mm. isn't a major part of that. And I, I imagine a lot of the fan base are you know, Lovecraft fans probably more so than they are mixed combat fans, if that makes sense. Right. And so I think it's probably an easy an easy assumption to make is oh, I'm not gonna put very much combat in. And then actually you do end up with the Arkham file setting is 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 pulp Cthulhu, where you do run around with a shotgun and you are just exterminating things. Oh yeah, and that has to be an aspect of the way it plays out. It has. I mean, I, so I would say I think I could have done better in that regard of of mixing combat into the scenarios a bit better, because that is the game that it is. 
while still respecting the kind of um, the fact that you know it's Antarctica and it is exactly yeah. it is it is what it is to some extent, yeah. right? Yeah, right. It's bleak, frozen plains. Not a lot of interaction, anyways. It's devoid of life. Right? <laughs> but I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna make up for it in the fifth and sixth ones. That's going to be hell on earth. Uh-oh. Ooh, very Ooh. Ooh. Uh, you heard it here first. <laughs> I'll, I have a specific question. I'll try to get your feedback on later on. Or maybe <laughs> maybe I'll just ask it now. Do you think it's a good idea to have enemies that are immune? to the damage dealt by flamethrowers and lightning guns. Ooh, oh. interesting. How, Ooh. how sad would that make you? I mean, I think it, I think the main thing is you would feel bad if you had spent a ton of XP to put that in your deck and then you found that this was the case, but if you had some right. kind of advanced warning of it, even if it was, like, oblique, that might make it a little better. Yeah. Or if there are alternatives that you were to be able to implement, you know, in scenario, so that way when you get to the point where, oh, I'm going to whip out my lightning gun, suddenly you can't use it, you have an alternative to dig for, or, yeah. you know, something like yeah. that. That would feel pretty okay, I guess. Or if it was just reduced damage from those things, maybe. Yeah, that might be a yeah. better actually, yeah. Yeah. If they just take one less. I've always thought that those kinds of things, like like kind of doubling back on a double-down strategy is, like, <laughs> really, really mean, but it can be done in such a way that it it really is an interesting obstacle to get over, right? Because generally... When people are upgrading into those kinds of weapons, it's because of the fact that they want to overkill things, most things anyways. But suddenly, when that doesn't work, what do you do? You hope you packed another weapon. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So uh, I had a question. Uh, I've been really enjoying the story of the campaign. I think you put a lot of work into writing it, even though... uh, it's uh, sometimes a struggle for me to read some of those bigger words, but uh, <laughs> um, it's excellent flavor text across the board. Oh, thank you. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty great. I was curious how you handle like planning out the story so that you can deal with like uh, if the player succeeded a scenario versus fail a scenario or succeed at certain parts of it versus fail and like uh, keep the story advancing in the direction you want to go. Yeah, that's a that's another real struggle with the way the uh with the way the game works. Um I feel like I feel like the official scenarios are really sort of still finding their way on that and they vary quite a lot, you know. And and again with the problem with the linearity, it's like if you um there are often going to be certain situations where it doesn't make logical sense to continue with the campaign because you just failed. And I think it is okay. I mean, you know, you know, Unspeakable Oath, which famously just kills you. <laughs> right. which, although I think, in, I think in Unspeakable Oath, it does feel f- quite well justified. But uh, so I put yeah. one of those in for my second scenario. If you somehow manage to die in Act One, I don't know how that's even possible. But I put in a little clause which just says, <laughs> "Campaign's over. You're just dead." Nice. Yeah. Because you've made, you haven't even made it to Antarctica, and you're dead. Yeah. So it, you could say, like, you know. None of none of the events that are supposed to play out in that scenario end up playing out. So fine, the campaign's over. But it's not. I don't think that's harsh because I think it it's probably borderline mathematically impossible to die in Act One. <laughs> <laughs> and it's early enough in the campaign. Even if it did happen, you could just go back and start again. I'll talk about it more when we talk about the specifics of Scenario Three. But that one's that one's actually quite challenging. And then having it, I, I started taking it more seriously. So I don't play the game solo. I sort of don't really understand playing the game solo. It's incredibly. <laughs> swingy and yeah i listen to people i i I listen to and watch people doing solo playthroughs and they just seem to have a 50 50 chance of surviving every scenario which i guess is giving you that authentic lovecraftian feel everyone right right. i was gonna say yeah i mean we as as people who love lovecraft hey you got that coin flip yeah but um but yeah when i started when i so i I do i do do a run through with a basic peak deck just to make sure that the maths work because sometimes it doesn't you know if i if i can only gather one clue around basically does the scenario still play out correctly so I do give it a bit of a test, but I'm not too worried about the difficulty balancing. Yeah. But then actually, because in solo, the likelihood is you're going to 
fail. You're not going to get to the end of the act before the agenda deck completes. So I felt there like it wasn't it wasn't like a, a rare happenstance that I had to sort of plan occasionally. It was like if someone's playing through this campaign in solo, they're going to hit all of these failure points, and so I need to <laughs> I need to make sure that they they play out. I I can't really talk about it in much more detail. I think without spoiling yeah. the, the scenario specifically. Yeah. But yeah, that is that is really challenging to do genuinely. Yeah, definitely. So we'll uh, we'll switch over to the spoiler warning in just a minute. But one last question before we do: um, What advice would you give to other people who are maybe thinking about trying to create their own scenarios or content for this game? Are there what are like some of the most valuable things you've learned that you wish you'd known when you first got started? I think we we, we discussed a couple of them earlier, but um, I would say you need. Often, I would ask you know when, when someone's coming up with a project of any any sort of game project, you need either a, a good narrative hook or a good mechanical hook. And then you can build everything else out from there. And I think with an Arkham scenario, you really need both. Mm. Like, what is your what is your narrative premise? What is happening in the scenario? What is mechanically interesting? What's going on? And then the second most important thing is just what do the act and agenda decks do? And once you've figured out those things, at that point, I feel like the scenario really... The trickiest thing, the thing that I spend the most time on is actually building the the encounter deck. That's a huge pain in the neck, but it's much more straightforward by comparison because you just you can just grab a load of generic encounter sets, just grab ghouls and rotting remains and and chilling cold, and just throw them in a deck and just and, and you can start playtesting. You don't have to do any design there. But then actually going back and building the proper encounter deck, I've found very challenging. Do I add in? How diluted is it? Is how many enemies are there in it? Does it have ancient evils? Is quite an important decision that you need to make. <laughs> yeah, of course. Because that will radically change the feel of the scenario. And then after that, it's just it's playtesting. I guess the most important advice I would give to someone is play test it with someone else. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Before before you print it all out on Printer Studio, right? Like make sure at least one other human has tried out your scenario before you before you go print it all out because they will just break it in all sorts of ways that you hadn't even thought of. So yeah, we wanted to ask you a little bit about you know, the details of of each of the scenarios. Uh, so this is spoiler time for anyone that wants to experience Betrayal of the Mountains the of Madness. Spoiler Shield or, is here. or or Batmom, as we've been calling it. <laughs> yeah, Batmom. <laughs> Bat- Bat- yeah. uh, and we do really, really recommend that people try this. Uh, it's it's really cool. Yeah, one hundred percent. It's great. I mean, you 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 heard the dusting of of where it's taking place, Antarctica. You've got really spooky things happening out there, a la um, Mountains of Madness, so we recommend it. But let's get into the nitty-gritty. Yeah. So there's like a couple mechanics in this campaign. There's the abduction and the apparatus. Yeah, how how did you come up with uh, with, with those two uh, mechanics? So apparatus, I think we've seen in, I think, all of the scenarios so far, and abduction, I think we've seen in only some of them. Is that right? Uh, yeah, abduction was in the first two, but it's not in the third one. Yeah. So abduction, abduction is, is, I can't remember why I thought it was so important to include it now, but the, the premise of the scenario <laughs> is, is that the elder things are kidnapping academics, mm, which is yeah. similar to the introduction to Dunwich, I suppose. So it starts out at a, at a convention in Boston. No, uh, um, what's the right word? Academic conference or? Yeah, a conference, a conference in Boston. Totally. <laughs> and, and the elder, the, basically the elder things have hosted a, hosted a, a conference to, in order to kidnap all the academics who turn up. Uh, so you go along in with the Miskatonic University to go along to this conference. So it's set, it's also, it's set in 1935. And, um, the reason I chose to do that is because, I mean, so the original Mountains of Madness is set, I think, in 31. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And actually, I think Arkham Files kind of ignores that because I think the, because the Arkham Files is sort of vaguely in the twenties, but I right. think, I think the Forgotten Age dates it specifically to 1925. 
but the Dunwich horror I think is set in like 1929 or something like that so I think they're they're, they're just being a bit vague about when things happen which is fine but Mountains of Madness specifically depends on relatively recent technology that wasn't really around in 1925. Like Lovecraft was actually weirdly up to date on his tech. <laughs> oh yeah, because that was. Sure. I mean, th- this yeah. was the era where like exploring Antarctica it was like you know the moon landing in the 60s. It was like this yeah. incredible new thing that had just become possible. Yeah, and I think so. The Dunwich Horror, for example, wouldn't be any different in 1925 to 1930. But Mountains of Madness would be a different story in 1925 because the rate of technological change was so much at that point. And so I thought it was quite important to, 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 to set it after. And Beyond the Mountains of Madness is set in 1933 to 1934. And I specifically wanted it to be set after that. I mean, that doesn't actually make any real difference. I, I have, I have player cards designed, which I guess if I ever finish off the campaign, I'll, I'll include player cards, I guess, for things like, you know, weapons that were developed in 1935 and that sort of thing. Ooh. But it doesn't actually make that much difference. Funnily enough, the biggest change is the fact that, um, Wendy Adams would no longer be a little girl. <laughs> <laughs> I think, like, does she have uh, has her strength gone up at all is it not one anymore or <laughs> i actually i actually have like 1935 versions of some of the investigators sort of designed but no i think wendy can stay at one strength she's, yeah, uh, cool. yeah she's been she's fair. been studying with ursula downs and so she hasn't <laughs> hasn't got any better but yeah it doesn't it doesn't really make any difference to the to the the actual card pool or gameplay really right but it, it, i got to design because in the first scenario, you have to rescue a whole load of academics who are lost. And because a lot of those are the investigator characters, I got to write little backstories for what happened to them in the last 10 years. So I've just sort of assumed a canonical playthrough of the of the scenario. So Ursula was in The Forgotten Age, of course. Wendy soloed Knight of the Zealot. Oof. What was the other one? Min, That's impressive. Min did The King in Yellow, but she's not in, she's not in there, so I didn't get to write that down. Yeah, so I'm just sort of assuming a, a backstory whereby all of the, all of the other campaigns have been played i've also assumed that a cthulhu campaign happened at some point during the 20s <laughs> i think that's a safe assumption at some point yeah. A, yeah, yeah yeah someone someone managed to clear that one out yeah and i think we probably are expecting an official mountains of madness campaign at some point i have to every time a new campaign is announced i have to be like please not mountains of madness please not mountains of madness because everyone else <laughs> right. everyone oh, yeah. else is saying the exact opposite wait another year wait a year then you can do <laughs> yeah it. yeah exactly yes yeah. so i was really i'm not particularly interested in the dreamlands but i was super relieved when <laughs> when Dream Eaters was announced. But yeah, I, do, I think Matt seems to be going out of his way to be as obscure as possible. That mm. seems to be very much his style. Yeah. So I think it might take him a while to get to Vrilia or, uh, or Antarctica, to be honest. Yeah, he's managed to resist like, just throwing Cthulhu in there like this entire time. I know. Like, Every time. It's especially, it's especially impressive because they have so much art already in existence for most of these things. Yeah, yeah. He must have his boss like, like I'm amazed. I'm amazed that someone just hasn't come in and told him to make Cthulhu. You know, like, his boss must have such respect for him. It's really impressive. Yeah, it's definitely. Crazy. Yeah. Sorry. So uh, yeah. So the premise is that the other things are kidnapping academics, and then the reason that it's set in Boston and not in Arkham is there's a reference at the end of At the Mounds of Madness, where Danforth, having been driven insane by seeing a Shoggoth emerge from a tunnel that looked to him like an oncoming subway train, starts chanting the names of the boston subway line stations yeah and i suddenly realized when i was planning out this scenario that i could have the locations be the boston subway line stations. so you you progress along them in the order that dan i think it's in the opposite order to the order that danforth gives them and it's it's great because uh, i mean so we're all originally from from that area i know i rode that red line earlier this year and uh, and i've done it many times and it was it's very cool to be playing the scenario and see the locations that are just literally the same stops because it's the same stops today pretty much with a couple of small differences yeah i had to do some i had to look it up like what what changed and what's uh 
Yeah, I think one of them closed and then opened again or something like that. But um, I think so, yeah. The red line, by the way, is known for being really unreliable these days and really uh oh, right. us, but it's uh, you know. <laughs> Oh it was uh, it was top of the range in nineteen eighty five, Oh yeah, I'm sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's it's a fun title as well, because Boston Redline, obviously it named itself because Redline means sort of two different things. It's like the point of no return and it also means like massively overdoing it. Absolutely. Yeah. It was also it was cool because um, you know, you mentioned kind of like starting not wanting to have um being really careful about how you wanted to kick off the campaign. And this is yeah. a neat kind of like a, it, it's a little bit separate from the actual trip to Antarctica, but it sets the stage and it puts you right into the middle of this like action kind of right at the beginning. And it, that's, that's really great. It reminded me of like each of the Indiana Jones movies starts with some kind of like sort of separate like action sequence. It had like that kind of a feel to it. Yeah. It's a like cold open. I feel like the big alternative would have been. So if it, so one of the advantages I have of making a custom campaign is, is, I don't have to worry about card count. I don't have to worry about carefully using up generic encounter sets. I can just, oh, yeah. if I need to include 130 cards in a scenario, I can. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm slightly conscious because a lot of people have asked me they want a version of it to print out. I, I develop it and I playtest it on Tabletop Simulator, but a surprising number of people have said, oh, well, uh, yeah, I'll play it, but only if I can print it out, which seems to me to be so much more effort, but, but if that's what people want. So I, I, may, I did make some printout files and that's made me a little bit more conscious of like, you know what? I don't want them to have to print out massive, massive amounts of paper <laughs> just for this one scenario. So I've, I have, I have moved some more things into the generic encounter sets from thinking about it in that way. But I don't have to specifically think about that. But if I did, I think it's you could say undermines the theme a little bit for the first scenario to not be set in the snow. So the obvious alternative would be that the first scenario is in Arkham in the winter. It's an unusually cold winter. You know, mm-hmm. so you can have lots of snow mechanics and cold mechanics in the first scenario. Like, so I think it's a really, um, elegant design. The Untamed Wilds is a really elegant design because it only uses generic encounter sets. It's basically, you know, here's all of, here's all of the mechanics of the Forgotten Age. Boom. First scenario, off you go. Right. And, and I think if I was designing it for an official release, I probably ought to be doing that for my first scenario, but I don't have to. So subway, subway train, <laughs> off we go. There's no snow. Yeah, for sure. It's full of ghouls. The reason it's full of ghouls, of course, I started writing the scenario and I made all the locations and I had the joke. And then I, only after that did I realize I'd been to that subway station in Fallout 4. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, because it takes place in Boston too, right? Yeah. So the, uh, yeah. There's, there's a fairly notable like plaza in Fallout 4 that I end up just returning to again and again. And it's completely, there's like a, there's a, I can't remember which one. I think it's the Harvard station. Um, but there's like oh, yeah. a little, um, newspaper stand and there's a, Oh, Harvard a, Square. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think it's Harvard Square. And, yeah. um, and that's a really, that's a really memorable location in Fallout 4, weirdly, even though there's nothing really there. And, <laughs> and so that's, that's why there are ghouls in the scenario, because obviously Boston, Boston subway tunnels are full of ghouls. Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah of course. In, in real yeah. life too. It's, uh, it all ties together. Yeah. But yeah. And then, so the, um, the unique mechanic for that scenario is focused around allies. So the premise is that you, there are lots of face down story allies, um, and you have to discover them by, by, uh, just working through clues and then most of the encounter cards interact with the number of allies you have I th- there used to be a version that was basically arrows from the trees but more punishing and i think i'm oh. taking that out <laughs> i balanced it was i think it was everyone at your location takes one damage for each ally they control or something like Oof. that thank you <laughs> thank you for changing that was the play test nobody got past the second station <laughs> or- yeah so originally, originally there was a mechanic in that scenario. So it, it's linear. So it works like S, um, Essex. Yeah. So it's just seven, seven locations in a row. And I was worried that there wasn't. So in Essex, you have to clear clues before moving on, but you don't. You can just wander to the exit. 
So originally I was worried that there just wasn't enough to think about when moving on. So it had a mechanic, which was that you couldn't move into a location until you'd attempted to move into it a number of times equal to the number of players. So you basically tracked how many times you'd done that with resource tokens. So in a four-player game, you had to take four move actions, and then that would reveal the location, and then you could move into it freely to represent sort of exploring the way onwards. Mm. That was insanely punishing, it turns out. <laughs> I kind of want to put it in as like a hard mode only rule or something like that. I think I'm probably not going to bother. It feels like a like a stretch goal that I don't really have time for, and I probably want to just make the scenario. Yeah, you've, you've given yourself enough stuff to do already, probably. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. But uh, I keep designing in these mechanics that end up insanely punishing, and then I have to take them out again because, actually, funnily enough, it was much much easier with like one or two players than it was with three or four because three or four players just kept getting bogged down. Like one of them couldn't move, and then there's there's the um the the one that goes into play that shoots at everybody. That used to be permanent, I think. I changed Ooh. it so that if anybody leaves, if everybody leaves, it gets discarded. It used to be permanent. And then multiples of those would end up going down on the same location. So if anybody <laughs> spent any time in this location, they would just immediately get shot and die. Um, so yeah, it was mostly tuning the difficulty down, down for that one. And also dealing the maths of abduction. So, abdu- so sorry, you were asking about the abductor keyword. Um, so abdu- abductor is basically the kidnapped treachery from um, Blood on the Altar. Right, but except a, all the time. A, a, yeah, except all the time. <laughs> so anytime, anytime there's an abductor card around it, it's like on aliens, and you lose an ally. Yeah, I mean, we were terrified of that abduction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, we, we were uh, played extremely cautiously to avoid that ever happening, and I think we did pretty okay. I think only my beat cop got stolen. <laughs> so, <laughs> but it definitely that definitely added to the tension. We've talked about that, how like being uh, going insane or, or dying in a scenario, whatever, you take a trauma, you come back the next one, like maybe your allies can still finish the scenario with you, but like losing one of your cards permanently, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the really scary thing, right? Yeah, that's something I've really struggled with actually in designing scenarios is, I mean, another characteristic of Arkham Horror is it's occasionally just randomly punishing. Sometimes, mm-hmm. sometimes on purpose, like the scenario is just like test will six or get a weakness. And there's tentacles in the bag, right? Sometimes it's you drew a cultist and a, and a, a chanting and a ancient evils all in the same round, and now you've been a you know. The, and, and I really struggle with with how to balance it. I feel like it needs those occasional fuck you moments, right, for it to feel like an Arkham scenario. For sure, yeah. But I've, I I genuinely struggle with how to design them. <laughs> so <laughs> because that's not my instinct as a designer. Actually, isn't like I make things quite easy. You know, I'm 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 a linear story focused sort of designer. It's like you know, tour through my content, get to the end, and get the nice story. And so actually, then I end up overcompensating for that, making it insanely punishing. The version of Scenario Three you guys played was hugely toned down from the one the previous playtesters tried. Oh wow! I'll tell you about it. (laughs) Yeah, and we, I mean, and through, but it was already it felt pretty tough. I I thought, but uh, I mean, not not unrealistically so. Yeah, you felt like you were struggling. So yeah, the so the first scenario, the the Boston Red Line, we we really liked. Moving on to um the second one, the Voyage South. So this one is a uh, I I think we were trying to remember is this the first Arkham Horror scenario we've played that is set on a boat? I think it is. Maybe depends if you played Constellation on the Constellation. Oh yeah, okay, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. But actually, but, uh, so yeah, I was working on mine when so I was a bit behind on on um sorry, what's it called Mythos Busters at the mm. time so I was already designing the boat scenario when I heard them talking about designing a boat oh. scenario I was, <laughs> so I was really intrigued and I think actually they're not they're not very similar at all like theirs is intentionally a bit more pulpy and it's about fun yeah. falling off the boat Dane's played that one we haven't played it yet but we're, we're going to there's a fascinating number of similarities between both of them 
Yeah. yeah. But it's I mean, not, not a complete overlap, but just like in, in each person's interpretation of how a boat works and how, yeah. you know, various me- mechanics can be tied to it. It's pretty cool. And uh, and this is the one where we first meet the kind of uh, an- antagonist, maybe not the only antagonist, but we, we meet the, uh, you know, the Nazi expedition for the first time as well in this one, which is pretty cool. Yeah. So you go, you're going along with Nazis. That's partly because, I mean, obviously it's just awesome, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, as you do. They're yeah, the, best, you know. the best possible villains in any situation. That's part of, that's part <laughs> of the advantage of it being set in 1935. I think, I think Indiana Jones must be set around then. Temple of Doom is set in 1935. Right, uh, exactly. yeah. So and the, the other ones are set a couple years later. And it's actually a really interesting period of history because the Nazis are already Nazis. They're already evil. They've already, right, right. I, think, I think in 1935 they've already, they've had the Night of Long Knives and I think they've had Kristallnacht as well. So yeah, they're already but, evil. But the rest of the world is like kind of in denial about it and like yeah, doesn't the, really want to engage with it all the way. Yeah, and the Olympics happen the next year, the 1930s oh, yeah, Berlin yeah, Olympics yeah. happen the next year. So it's a really interesting period of history where you've got these sort of global supervillains, but no one really wants to have a fight with them, so they're just kind of getting <laughs> away with shit. They're scary, yeah. 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 So it's so it's really but I mean so actually historically they didn't go off and do exciting like occult investigation, but obviously in the, that we know of, that we know of. But yeah. the uh, the the organization, the Arnenerber, is a real organization. They're they're basically the um, basically who the baddies are in Indiana Jones, I think. But they're they're like an mm-hmm. archaeological expedition. They went they went to the Himalayas and stuff. Their their job was to go basically to go to Scandinavia and look for relics that proved that the German people were from Scandinavia and were better than everyone else. Basically, was their job. Right. And they sort of, they just made up all this weird race science. They were founded by the Thule Society, who were an actual occult organization. Yeah, that, that's what I was going to mention, because I had read some stuff about the Thule Society, I think, and this was like, I was wondering what the relationship between them was. Yeah, and then, so, I think I think the Arnenerba was founded by members of the Thule Society or something like that, but they weren't themselves an occult organization. Okay, and then they got, they got folded into the SS, but so by 1935, they're technically part of the SS. Mm. But obviously sort of not. The SS, is, but the, the SS is quite a large organization with quite a lot of different PR and fashion and all sorts <laughs> of stuff. You know, they, did, they yeah. weren't just like stormtroopers at that point. Right. But yeah, they're, they're basically an SS archaeological organization who are effectively just fabricating evidence that, of, of German supremacy. So they were looking for Ultima Thule and um, Hyperborea and things like that. So they're actually at the wrong end of the world, really. But like, <laughs> it, it, it makes... It makes sense to me that if they've got, you know, if they've got access to the At the Mountains of Madness document, so Dyer, the, the purpose of the, the point of the book At the Mountains of Madness is he's written this book to try to convince people not to go to Antarctica. So if you're yeah. Himmler and you get this book, you're like, oh, aliens in Antarctica, let's go there. <laughs> so off they go. And that's, that's, that's part of the premise of Beyond the Mountains of Madness is that there's a German expedition. And funnily enough, I'm not sure, I guess they're maybe for reasons of taste or something, but they don't actually play into the fact that they're Nazis at all. They're just a German expedition. Hmm. In 1933, they're funded Which, yeah. by like Junkers and Delag or something, and they're, but they're not Nazis. They're not. They don't play up like the Nazi tropes, right? Well, that's and I mean, like 33, it's like they, they maybe weren't in complete control of of Germany at that yeah. point. So maybe it's like more yeah. of a yeah. But yeah, so by 1935, and then there obviously there are soldiers and stuff, and um, but yeah, um, so yeah, so you're on the boat with these Nazis. Yeah, so there are like three different sides to this right now suddenly coming out of the the boston red line the voyage south introduces the nazis and also well reintroduces the uh, eldritch threat yeah the elbow things yeah yeah i mean the the cool mechanic with this one was like each location had like three acts to it that you tried to like 
get the clues from the location, and if you succeeded at getting to the bottom, you got some benefit that helped you in the later part of the scenario. Yeah. And and then there was also a mechanic. Once you got to the second half of the scenario, where some elder things show up, you have to like try to control the elder things to stop them from like wrecking all your stuff on the ship and or killing people. And that has like repercussions, at least in the third scenario, and I'm assuming it'll come into play in later scenarios as well. Yeah, I'll have I have plans in mind for how they'll interact with later scenarios, but that may or may not work. So I, I made sure that each of them paid off in the third scenario. So there are seven locations on the ship, and the elder things can wreck any of the seven locations. And if they get all seven, you lose the lo- you lose the scenario. Right. And each of those gives you a penalty in scenario three. So it's kind of like what I'm trying to do is like supplies from TFA. Mm-hmm but much more organic. So I, I like to imagine someone playing through the through the um, the campaign for the second time and knowing what each of those supply things does and trying to protect areas of the ship on purpose because they don't want to deal with that with that problem. But the first yeah, time through, you're just they're just rampaging around and you've got no idea what they're going to do or what the consequences of that are going to be. Yeah. Right. And yeah. even if even if you do know which areas of the ship you want to protect, you might not be able to. Yeah, definitely. There's only so many resources and only so much time and all that. Yeah. And that one has, so something I've, you know, I said I've been struggling a lot with difficulty. So that one has scenario two, the basic premise is you spend the first act wandering around the ship trying to figure out what the Nazis are up to. And I've actually, since you played it, I've actually changed the campaign log very slightly. So you, you, you talk to Dyer and Dyer says, oh, we're going with, we're going with Nazis. And you say, what Nazis? And he's, he, in the original version, he says, oh, well, there's no one else going. I've changed it now so that he says something a bit more direct, like, well, if they're going to go to the Antarctic and exploit the secrets of Antarctica, wouldn't you rather be there to stop them? So it gives a mm. bit more of a directed... It implies from the outset that we're going along with the Nazis to stop them rather than just help them. Right. Because yeah. I thought... Mm. Scenario 3 ended up much more confrontational than I initially expected. I was initially imagining it being more delicate and political, but that didn't quite work out. Yeah, well, and especially because, I mean, it, it, looking back, we kind of take it for granted now, but at the time, there were Americans who were sympathetic, like Lindbergh and Ford and all those people, so, like... Absolutely, yeah. It's, you know, good to spell out that, uh, in fact, or, in fact, we're playing as the good guys in this situation. That's, I, I'm, I mean, obviously, with the current political climate as well. <laughs> yeah, that too. Of, of yeah. like, I need to, I actually, like, genuinely, it's, it sounds weird, but I do need to make it clear that the Nazis are baddies. Like, <laughs> and that I'm not trying to write some sort of sympathetic thing that's suggesting that Nazis weren't actually all that bad, because, you know, that is, that is a perspective that some people are coming from now, and that's, uh, so I do have to be slightly careful about oh, that. De- depressing, of course, but yeah. But, uh, yeah, no, and actually, you raised the, the, the race issue, and of course, um, like I'm, I'm interested in, in. I mean, Lovecraft, Lovecraft racism aside for a moment, the specific, like race and bigotry as it's, as it's portrayed in Atlanta of Madness is quite interesting, because it feels to me almost like, because um, I think it, Lovecraft wrote like, I think he died a couple of years later. It was one of his latest books, one of his last books before yeah, he died. I think so. Yeah, and and also honestly, That's right. That's one right, of yeah. his less racist books yeah, on the whole, absolutely. I think, compared to most of the other yeah. ones. There's very overt racism in it. There is there is some interesting implicit racism, like so. But it, that's what's interesting about it is that he, it's almost like his discovery is that it's not being different that matters; it's thinking differently that matters, or something like that. Because the kind of the point of the book, in a way, is that the elder things aren't actually evil or hostile just because right. they look different, just because they're different, just because they're a different race doesn't mean that they're bad. Doesn't mean that they're the enemy. And actually, almost it's almost like a theme of the book that that it. It doesn't matter. The, the the elder things and the humans do horrible things to each other because they don't understand each other. And there's, a, to me, a strong implication that if they did, they wouldn't have done those horrible things. 
Right, and then the other Shagas are there to eat them anyway, right? So it's it's kind of... <laughs> Which is pretty yeah. dodgy already. And when they take over, they ruin their civilization yeah. and they can't even do carvings on the wall properly. Like It's like, don't let the slaves take over because they can't even do artwork. So there is kind of like a, still a <laughs> sort of imperialist sort of racist undertone to that that I find quite interesting. But anyway, so, so including Nazis obviously is... Yeah. So I've, after a lot of hemming and hawing, the Arkham Files universe is clearly a slightly whitewashed, slightly like optimistic version of the 20s and 30s right and i haven't i've intentionally not explored the fact that characters like mark and daisy and roland would probably sympathize with a lot of what the nazis were saying and i did on manara about trying to include stuff about that and i thought it's probably best not to yeah i mean you know there's a risk of maybe just distracting a lot of people from like the very enjoyable aspects of it yeah i think it's probably not worth delving too much into the politics of that so i've i've presumed on the character's behalf that they are opposed to nazis and what nazis believe in because I think that's that's consistent with the way that you know they they they're quite happy to hang around with Akachi and Calvin. Well, not Calvin, but not because he's black, but because he's got zero in all his stats. Right, that's the objection. <laughs> yeah, that exactly. But, yeah, but no yeah. one no one minds taking Calvin to 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 the party hosted by by the black hostess. But, you know, so the characters observably aren't aren't like that. So let's not dwell on that. Mm. Sorry. So uh, you you you're on the ship with the Nazis and you're trying to figure out what the Nazis are up to. And then Act 2 rolls around and aliens attack the ship and suddenly the whole tone of it's completely different. So the Elder Things attack the ship and then two turns later a Shoggoth attacks the ship. Right. And the Shoggoth is trying to kill the Elder Thing. So the, Shog- <laughs> yeah. the Shoggoth in the first scenario is on the same side as the Elder Things and the Shoggoth in the second scenario is trying yep. to kill them. An even bigger Shoggoth than from the first one. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, yeah. And that's reflected in their traits if you look carefully. But then what that's trying to do is have like a stretch goal. So... The scenario is actually quite easy to complete. It's fairly easy to kill the Elder Thing Commando, which completes the scenario. But if you can delay killing the Elder Thing until after you've killed the Shoggoth, you get it's got three victory points on it. Oh yeah, that's a that's quite a haul. I think that when we played it, I think we we had some pretty bad luck early on in the scenario, and we were kind of behind. And I think we could tell that there was really going to be no possibility of us beating the Shoggoth, if I remember right. So we kind of just went for the commander, and yeah. yeah. Well, if we went for the Shoggoth, I think it would have. Yeah. Like there was a good chance the commander might have destroyed everything on the ship first. So <laughs> I have managed to do it, but it is really, really hard. I think you really need to know the scenario and yeah. plan for it and know what you're doing. It's cool, though, because that's something we can uh, we can shoot for next time. It feels like a good way to balance. You know, I said I, I struggle with the balancing of how difficult to make the scenario, and that feels like a good... If there's three, you know, if there's three steps of, like, ultimate success where you did everything, a reasonable amount of success where you did get to the end and then complete failure where you actually failed to complete the act deck, as long as all three of those are provided for, that means everyone's got Right. Something to think about yeah. all the time. Even if you're playing with Daisy and Mark on easy, you can still have something to strive for. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it adds a lot to replayability for sure. So let's um so let's let's move on to the the third scenario which we just kind of play tested. So because this one is maybe still under construction a little bit, we don't have to go as deep into it, but uh we we just played it. It was definitely really cool. This is the one where we actually where we land in Antarctica, we're at the kind of base camp and we're kind of dealing with the elements, we're dealing with um things kind of come to a head with the Nazis, right? Yeah, so so yes, you're 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 searching around on the ice. The purpose that this fulfills within the campaign is is there needs to be a scenario where you're just dealing with Antarctic conditions. Right. So this is the scenario I came to. You know, I said you need to start with a strong narrative and mechanical premise. I had neither of those with this scenario. <laughs> for the previous two, I knew very clearly what I wanted to accomplish. And I think for the next three, I know very clearly what it is I'm trying to accomplish. But with this one, I, I didn't. So what I did was basically just throw mechanics at it and <laughs> to see what happened. And that's why, so that's partly why I'm keen to get some playtesting done of it, because I'm much less confident of the design. But I, I'm I'm pleased with the way it's turned out in the end. I think it's it's it, I was very not confident about it while I was making it. 
We really, we really liked, I think the, um, the plane, the plane mechanic was really cool that you get your own plane that you can kind of fly around. That was really neat. Um, and in fact, that was the, the only way besides the dog sleds to travel around between the locations, which makes sense because they're far apart. You're, it's a really huge area. This isn't like a building where you can just walk from room to room. I wanted, yeah, that's, that's, that's the unique mechanical feel I'm trying to go for. It was when I, I was fiddling around and sort of trying to find uh, a hook, you know, some, some interesting mechanical thing to, to, to hang it on. And it was, wait, what if you just can't move? Was the, like, that, that sounds, yeah. that sounds like a very Matt Newman thing to do, right? Like, it's like, hey, what if, what if there's just no movement in this scenario and yeah. move actions just don't work? Oh, for sure. I mean, I, I drew two Pathfinders into my opening hand and I just kind of sat there and yeah. I was like, hmm, yeah. <laughs> these sure are cards. That's why the dog sled requires you to, the dog sled requires you to discard two cards to move. Originally it was three actions. Oh, wow. Ooh. And then I changed it to one action and two cards because then I realized you could chuck your shortcuts to move around and it at least wasn't quite as punishing that way. Yeah, definitely. Uh, two cards feels like it's enough of a penalty that you don't want to do it often, but it's you can do it when you really need to. It feels like kind of well-balanced in that sense. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you're discouraged. Yeah, It's a very good alternative. So, the, yeah, the, the, it's, it's very much almost like an atmosphere scenario because the, the, I want you to feel sort of isolated and so the snowstorms keep hitting you. So you can't, you're trapped by the snowstorm because that's obviously a crucial plot point in Out of the Mountains of Madness is the snowstorms come up. Right. We, we want to go by plane to Lakes Camp, but we can't because of the snowstorm is a, is a, is a key plot point about the Mountains of Madness that I definitely wanted to keep there of like, okay, like, cause it's quite a time, it's, well, actually it's not a particularly time sensitive scenario, but it's a very, um, yeah, we need to be in or out of this location this turn. But we can't because it's a snowstorm. Fuck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. It. It. I think it did an incredibly good job at portraying almost like a Martian landscape. In that, if you watch The Martian or or like what was the the Red Planet or something like that, all these things where you're tr- they're they're trying to you know enter the atmosphere or the Mars's landscape, and there are dust storms that blow across all the time, and and that's essentially what the Antarctic is, right? Like it's just yeah. so unbelievably brutal, and the encounter cards just do such an effective job at portraying like how bleakly brutal it is to even just exist in those scenarios, like with the supplies and everything like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's what I was trying to get. Was was yeah, you shouldn't be here. This is a dangerous place to be. I also uh I, I really like the Zeppelin like looming overhead throughout the whole thing. Right. And it kind of comes to a head at the end and that's kind of the the enemy that you have to to deal with, but especially like the way that you kind of handled the kind of like at the first like tense relationship with the Nazis where like they don't know at first that you're kind of working against them, but you have choices about how suspicious your actions are going to be and how much you're going to directly work against them versus trying to do it on the kind of secretly that felt really cool as well. Yeah. Yeah. It uses, yeah. It uses multiple act decks. Funnily enough, listening to you guys talk about it while you were playing through it. So originally they were agendas. Oh, really? And then they had to have so much text on <laughs> to make it. Because obviously, like if Marie goes crazy and puts five doom on rent, oh no, it doesn't. It doesn't feel right that the Nazis would get more suspicious. That doesn't quite feel right. I've I've I've, I've fiddled around a lot. You know, I was talking about how difficult it is to design act and agenda decks, right. and I feel fairly strongly that where possible, the agenda deck should be. What's the right word? It should be mystical or occult or mythosy or at worst natural forces mm. as opposed to the actions of some mundane individual. Yeah. Yeah. And it's very, very well represented here, I think. I feel like I feel like the themes of the cards that add doom assume that the agenda deck is some sort of force of nature or force of the mythos. And so I to me having the Nazi progress be represented by doom, it would work mechanically, I think. It would be fine. Mm. But it didn't quite 
feel right. I, I also liked it better this way just because it really felt like it was expressing the fact that you're kind of in a race with the Nazis to discover what, what happened and to kind of make progress. Yeah. Like it felt like the kind of like in, in the mummy or like Indiana Jones or something where you have like opposing teams of people that are both trying to solve the same mystery. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It's, it's basically um, Echoes of the Past. Mm. I don't think it's completely unfair to say Echoes of the Past just doesn't really work. Mm. Yeah. It's so swing. <laughs> you either, either nothing happens or they just beat you. Yeah. The concept is there. Yeah. And you never really feel like you're competing with them yeah. properly. So I was trying, so actually I've, I mean, I don't think, I feel like the race aspect works better than Echoes of the Past. It's still very swingy. It's possible for them to just beat you. Yeah, we we were. I mean, so yeah, you, you watched us when we were playing it, but we we were like, uh, they were one clue short of advancing for a big chunk of the game, uh, and we kind of just barely held them off of it right at the end. Yeah, you guys were doing spectacularly badly. <laughs> <laughs> we we felt like we were totally screwed for most of it, but that that's like I think <laughs> I think true. that's the mark of a good scenario is when you're like, oh, I think we're we're gonna maybe just barely make it through, and it's actually like, yeah, that's pretty much how it was supposed to go. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. it's turned out every t- every time I've playtested it, it's gone quite. Yeah, it it feels like all the moving parts are gonna fall apart, but then actually, <laughs> it just you just sort of squeak through. Yeah. So the specific thing I wanted to ask you about and the reason, so the, the scenario is finished, and I've put it out mm-hmm. on Steam, but. I'm considering a major change to it. And the reason I'm considering a major change to it is I'm worried that it's just too fiddly. Hmm. Because you've got a lot to keep track of. You've got three act decks and an agenda deck. You've got between two and five cards in play that you have to draw a chaos token for every turn and look it up on a table to find out what happens. Plus you've got your own supplies that you've got to deal with. Plus you've got the plane that you've got to deal with. And I'm worried that there's just too much going on there. So that is something that I, I think I kind of noticed was there was just a lot of stuff to check each round at, at different times during yeah. the round. But that said, I mean, if I had a, if I had a choice, like, especially given that this is a fan scenario that is probably only going to be played by people that are a little bit more invested in the game and play it a little bit more. Yeah. I think it's okay if it's kind of like expert level in the sense of the the complexity is higher and maybe you're able to explore game design possibilities that the officially released scenarios can't just because of the inherent limitations. Like, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. Is there, is there any way to make it so that all those different checks for supplies, moving the Zeppelin, moving the Nazis, is there any way to just make those all happen at the same point in the turn? The problem is how, like, if I draw, if you draw one token and apply the same result to all of them, then they gain ten, ten, ten clues. In one oh, but turn. I mean, even if it's, even if you draw different tokens, but at least you're like doing it all at the same point in the round, that might make it just a little bit easier to keep track of because it's not like beginning of enemy oh, yeah, phase, end of enemy phase, uh, end of your investigator phase. It matters quite a lot whether when the um, it matters quite a lot when the zeppelin moves. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. It depends whether it moves before or after them. I would, I would love to sort of have it be like a maintenance phase. Mm. The game doesn't really have a component for that. I could put a, not a story card. There are these little like rule hint cards, you know, the ones that you get in right. the um, standalones. I could have one of those that has the rules on it, or I could just put a set of rules in the campaign guide that say do these things. Yeah. I mean, it, it was something that you probably could do at the beginning of upkeep phase. Like investigators can lose their supplies. The Zeppelin can move, because the Zeppelin never attacks after it moves, right? But it matters. The Zeppelin and the uh, Nazis, the, their positions matter relative to each other, because if the Zeppelin is like on a location with Nazis or something. But not relative to the players. I don't think any of those interactions... Like, the Zeppelin has to go before the Nazis, but I don't think... I don't know. Yeah, it's oddly difficult to... Like, in a computer game, I could just write a single imperative that just said, do this, then do this, then do right. this. Yeah. It's oddly difficult to have cards that interact with each other, because they would have to say, the Nazi the exploration teams would have to say, after the Zeppelin moves, do this. Uh, which yeah. isn't really a concept the game supports. It's it's actually quite tricky to have... that. That's why one happens at the beginning of the enemy phase and one happens at the end. Because that way, they're just clearly defined moments in the turn. 
and I, I, I was really struggling to find, because not only does it have to be um, unambiguous, it also has to be sort of easy to understand. Because mm. I'm used to working in computer games where there's no such thing as ambiguity. <laughs> it just does what it does. Yeah. But in a, in a card game, it's really important that the card not only do... It, you know, it needs to say what it does, but it, it needs to be written in a way, and the concepts themselves need to be simple enough to understand that you do it. I noticed you made a couple of misplays, and I was kind of pleased in a way. Yeah, because we definitely. It do. feels like it's not a legitimate Arkham scenario if it's not so complicated <laughs> to make a couple of misplays. That's absolutely <laughs> true. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't know if there are any scenarios I've, I've I've finished without misplaying at least one thing. You know, but no, definitely. Uh, you know, interested to see if you end up to, if you do end up tweaking it. Like like I said, I mean, I I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a great scenario, and in maybe this in this particular case, maybe there's an advantage to uh, simplifying it a little bit. But in general, I just I think that that's a really cool advantage that you have is like you were saying, where you don't have to rely on the a small number of cards that are released in a pack. In the same way, like you can get a little bit more complicated just because I think you can count on your audience being people that really love the game and like this is not the first or even like 10th or 50th time that they're playing it yeah yeah absolutely yeah hopefully also because it comes in like the first scenario is not very complicated right now yeah by the time they arrive at the third scenario they're invested so they're willing to put up with it a little bit yeah definitely the change if i were to change it what i would do is take out the exploration teams keep the zeppelin and then effectively replace the exploration teams with encounter cards that did something similar yeah you draw this encounter card it generates two clues a turn until you go deal with it that sort of thing yeah that's true it was it was cool to have like um have them flip from being these kind of these annoying you know nuisances early in the scenario to like oh finally we get to fight them we finally get to beat up the Nazis yeah that was a cool feeling so the whole there's a slightly clunky thing on the the base camp you can just look at the back of all the Nazi guards mm. and the reason I added that is because when my friends were playtesting it they were interestingly you had the same response you absolutely did not want the Nazis to complete the act one oh yeah. And they they were treating like it's better to die than to let the Nazis complete their Act One, which is interesting because <laughs> yeah. the penalty yeah. the penalty for letting them complete Act One isn't actually that severe. Mm. It's Act Two that's right. a problem. That makes a lot of sense. And yeah, I did. So I did point out to them that the Act Deck had two cards in it, and they sort of ignored that because like, that's that's the <laughs> crucial evidence, right? Is like you look at how many cards there are in the agenda deck, and if it's still at least two, then don't sweat it. Yeah. Ben pointed out the same thing at some point, and everybody no. No, they cannot. They cannot do. <laughs> yeah, we don't. We don't want the Nazis to do anything. But yeah, so they they just attacked. They just went. They just attacked the Nazis, mm. and then they they flipped all the cards over, and they were like, "Oh shit, we're gonna die now!" Because <laughs> they they were at the base camp. They were at the base camp. They hadn't resupplied. There was an exploration team there, and the Zeppelin team. There, oh, no. and the Zeppelin was there, and they attacked the Nazis. <laughs> at which point, the, the machine gun team flipped over to attack them, and the Zeppelin started attacking them, and they started freezing to death because they had no supplies. <laughs> Wow, that's a lot of stuff all at once. And, uh, so that's why it's so it's slightly clumsy. But I'm just like, you know, Mark is there. He's in the Antarctic. He's, he's there are German machine gun teams running around. He's going to have some idea of the capabilities of a machine gun team. He's been he spent six weeks with them at sea. You know, he's going to have some idea of their combat capability. Yeah. Oh yeah. So it seems fair to me for the you know it's not again it's they're not a mythos force right they're not supposed to be like a an incomprehensible unknowable thing they're just a team of guys with a machine gun. right they're they're all too knowable unfortunately but yeah, yeah exactly yeah so i think uh so you know obviously we don't want to spoil too much and some of this is is uh you know we want to leave mysterious but can you give us like a little bit of a, a taste or a hint of uh what we can expect in the the upcoming scenarios of, of the campaign yeah so scenario four is about exploring the um the Basmaya falcon base camp mm. and this one is actually you know when I said Beyond the Mountains of Madness has a whole lot of material in it? Mm-hmm. So there's actually like 
a thing that's not part of the campaign at all. It's not in the campaign, but it's sort of mentioned in an appendix. There's this whole other scenario that takes place at the same time the players aren't taking part in. And this is basically a recreation of that scene. So it's sort of the thing. Uh, so it's like an abandoned Antarctic base. And it's like, what happened here, you know? Yeah, and it was abandoned a year ago, and half the people were killed. Mm. And um, no one knows what happened to them. So you've got to go in and both find out what happened, but also find out whether, you know, what did they do? Where did they go? What did they discover? (laughs) So actually, when I was designing the campaign, I started with the fourth one. Oh, wow. Because I wanted to sort of get a handle on... It was very much the scenario I wanted to create to start with, if you see what I mean. I wanted to do like a thing. I'd seen a lot of people saying, I wish there was a thing scenario for (laughs) Akamara. So I thought, well, I can do this one from Beyond the Mountains of Madness. That'd be a cool scenario. And then when I made it, and it, it worked reasonably well, I thought, well, I can I can build a campaign around this to justify you getting there, and then explain what happens afterwards. You know. So that one's that one's in late development at the moment. But I, I, as I mentioned earlier, I keep I keep having to switch the key event from the act deck to the agenda deck and back again. So I think I'm gonna I've redesigned it a couple of times now. I've got having having finished three, I've now gone back to work on it again, and um, I've had to make a few changes to it. But it's 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 almost ready. And then after that, it's going to be after that, it's going to be a fairly combat-intensive one. Hmm. It works really appropriately with how FFG structures their campaigns, and that the fourth scenario is usually something that flips something on its head. You know, like usually it would be on the Boundary Beyond, or what's the one in Carcosa? Um, unspeakable. Oath. Unspeakable. Oath. The Insane Asylum. Right, right. There's always a big shift. Yeah, the kind of like kind of like a turning point for the campaign. Right. So that that feels very appropriate and very apt for you know at least from a design standpoint. And I'm sure that that's something that you'd considered. Yeah, yeah. It's um, yeah, the Volta. Mm. Yeah. There's another faction. Well, yeah. There's another faction in this scenario. Oh wow. Oh boy. Because there aren't enough factions. There aren't enough factions yet. <laughs> and then what I'm going to try for the fifth scenario. So I I got into a discussion on the Mythosbusters Discord saying I can't remember. I so I I have a specific scenario in mind. And it's, um, do you know Resident Evil 2? No. Yes. The origi- so the original Resident Evil 2. Yes. Well, okay. I mean, it, basically everything that has a cable car in it. <laughs> and you're in a cable car. So it's not a cable car, but it's a cable car. What's going to happen to you when you're in the cable car? So I got into a discussion on the Mythosbusters Discord saying, you can't make a scenario with only one location. Oh, boy. And they were going, yeah, I think you can. I think it'd be fine. And I'm like, no, you definitely can't. But they were like, yeah, it'd be fine. So I'm going to try and make a scenario with only one location and see how it goes. <laughs> Dane, Dane, take those Pathfinders right. right out of your deck. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Will do. If it doesn't work, if it doesn't work, I'll, um, I'll, it'll be two or three or something. But uh, we'll see. We'll see if it works. I'm just, I'm worried because there just won't be much tactical movement. You know, and, and, and a huge amount of the depth of the game comes from tactical movement. It seems exciting, though. Like, that's, it's a cool, like, that's the thing that I can imagine Matt and the FFG team are, like, probably going to try eventually. So this is an opportunity to, like, get in yeah. there and kind of do your own spin yeah. on it beforehand. So Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It feels like that bold, you know, that bold <laughs> statement of, like, yeah. what if there was only one location? I'm kind of kind of as pre-strategy, I'm definitely uh, switching out those Pathfinders for uh, Barricade Level 3s. <laughs> so that, uh, no enemies oh. will ever spawn anywhere. Oh god, yeah, I didn't even thought about uh, that. No, you gave it away. You should have waited, Dane. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I imagine worst case scenario, you'll just take it to like uh, the top of the train car, its own location, and then hanging off the bottom of it will be its own location. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll just do like the front of the the front of the car and the back of yeah. the car. Is, is this kind of like a? So yeah, I, I have not played Resident Evil Two, but I have seen Jurassic Park: The Lost World. Is it anything like the? Uh, <laughs> Is there anything? You like know, that? I've never seen. I've never seen the Lost there World. There is a. There's a scene where there's like a bus or something like dangling off the edge. Yeah. It'd probably be something like that, yeah. Cool. 
and then six is is the city and so that'll obviously be a very exploration heavy exploration heavy scenario where you want pathfinder mm. to wander around the city and explore what's going on right, so, so barricades back to pathfinders <laughs> got it yep yep swap, swap them back out again and uh, and then and then the plot the plot comes to its culmination and, and what on earth is actually going on in the seventh Ooh. and eighth stories. yeah we can keep that part uh super mysterious and we'll, we'll look forward my to spoiler it. for the eighth scenario is i'm not planning for you to go beyond time and space <laughs> into a mysterious other dimension oh wow and fight an that's like a first wow. for this game yeah. kind of yeah. that's <laughs> right? a surprise and that's exactly yeah. why we need fan-made scenarios <laughs> <laughs> yeah i did yeah it is getting a bit repetitive. Yeah. Although, I mean, they've at least kept the... They, they kind of have a similar nature in some sense, but they play differently, each of those kind of space scenarios. Yeah, at least yeah they do. Right. Yeah. So, Tim, but, but before we go, uh, you, you know, thanks so much. This has been been really cool. Oh, no, it's been great, yeah. Is there anything that uh, anything you'd like to plug besides, obviously, Betrayal at the Mountains of Madness, which is amazing and which we would absolutely encourage our listeners to check out? So uh, my, my blog, I made a blog specifically, so I had somewhere to post this, this stuff on it. And it's called <laughs> it's, writing it's, called itself. it's Writing Itself, yeah. which I was quite... Uh, I thought that was that's so a, cool. Yeah, That's actually a name of a card I made for... Uh, what's the name of the author character? The, the, the one from Eldritch Horror, you know, um, can't remember her name. She's an author. Gloria. And I was, I was making a, an investigator. Yeah, Gloria Goldberg. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I was making... So the premise I have for her, and I've played this and it just doesn't work, is that she, she's an investigator in the game. But she's also the author of the scenario. So she's writing the scenario, and Gloria Goldberg is her self-insertion character. <laughs> so she has a deck of cards, which are the book that she's writing. And every turn, you turn over a page of the book, and it like, it's like she goes for a cup of tea, so none of the monsters move that turn, or something like that. <laughs> it's a fantastic idea. It does not work mechanically at all. So <laughs> that's, that's incredible, but that's almost, that should be its entirely separate game, I would think. Like, that's just almost such a great idea. Like, <laughs> you know, save that, save that for like an, an entirely separate thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, that's where, that's where the name came from. But no, it's got no SEO at all. So if you want to find the blog, just search for Betrayal of the Mountains of Madness, and then you can actually, then it actually does show up. I think a Reddit thread with a link to the blog shows up because reddit knows how to do seo absolutely awesome but uh you know in 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 your day job though is there anything that we can uh, point our listeners towards so i i'm a designer on uh, runescape oh cool and uh in 2020 we are embarking on a year-long quest plan which i am the author of so it's going to be pretty exciting wow that's really cool so for anyone out there who's still playing runescape (laughs) yeah maybe it's time to brush it off i don't know yeah (laughs) come and play come and play quests in 2020 because they're going to be awesome very cool. cool. I mean, yeah, I do mean 2020. I lose track of the year. Yeah, because uh, so I'm working on 2020's plan. I've been working on 2020's plan for all of 2019. So I lose track. Of <laughs> I lose track of which year is which. Yeah. Yeah. So Tim, thanks again for joining us today. Uh, it's been incredibly insightful and enjoyable to hear your thoughts on everything. And we're eagerly awaiting the release of the next scenario. Yeah, four should be soon. Very cool. Yeah. Well, yeah. Thanks. Uh, thanks so much, Tim. And yeah, we'll uh, maybe we'll check back in with you when the when the rest of the scenario is out to do kind of like a post mortem interview or something like that. If, if if you're cool with that. Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you. Awesome. All right. Thanks very much. Cheers. And we're back. We hope you enjoyed hearing our conversation with Tim. Uh, definitely check out Betrayal at the Mountains of Madness if you do like cool things. I know I do. I'm, you know, I'm kind of lukewarm on cool things. And weirdly enough, I'm cool on lukewarm things. So I just, I don't know where I'm at about anything. It's an important paradox for sure. <laughs> yep. One final thing before we go. The winners of our Blackest Friday contest. Uh, thanks so much to everyone who entered our Blackest Friday auto fail face contest. 
We love seeing all of your entries, and it was really hard to pick uh, just two to give prizes to. We're awarding our second place honors to Matthias from Sweden. It's probably how you pronounce his name. Uh, and uh, first place is going to Aaron from North Carolina. Hooray, Aaron! Uh, congratulations to our winners. Hooray, congratulations. We'll be shipping out the prizes and promo cards soon to all those that uh, successfully passed the test of sending us your address along with your photo. Anyway, uh, we'll be posting the winning photos and a few honorable mentions on our blog, so go check them out. Guys, I got a uh, a random email with, like, a letter in it. I'm not sure what this is. <laughs> There's a, so here, here are a few facts for our listeners to share. Someone emailed us a quiche recipe or caused us to be emailed a quiche recipe. Someone also <laughs> apparently signed us up for Sonic Drive-In promotional emails. And uh, for the Blackest Friday contest, someone sent us in a very obscurely photographed piece of paper with text written on it in cursive in what we think might be Spanish or Portuguese. So either we're just getting random stuff or someone's like writing an ARG for only us to play and we're failing very badly at it. Uh, Personally, I like to believe that that's what's happening, but we just don't know. That sounds great. Person who sent the letter in either Spanish or Portuguese. I'd say it's more of a missive. Maybe... Maybe a little better resolution, if you could. We we want to read it. We we want to we want to find out what mysteries it holds. Although I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think you could consider it to be a very small one-page book. In which case, reading it would maybe be yeah, actually very, very very dangerous. Mm-hmm. A very poor choice. I Did you know. look at it upside down? Maybe it's actually like Eldritch text. And don't don't do it, Dane. Sounds like a bad idea. Uh, the, right. So the the jury is still out on that one. We'll we'll do some more research. All right, we'll catch us next episode when we uh, burn a letter from somebody. <laughs> um, <laughs> until then, comment wherever you listen to podcasts. Emails at comments at mur.fm. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye. Now the music happens. Music, 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 music. Here is an interview with Dr. Tim Fletcher of the Fletcher Clan. Miskatonic University Radio on the microphone, coming to you live from the Miskatonic University in New England. <laughs> 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 <laughs>